0: Support for KQED podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In a 5-4 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana abortion law today, effectively saving the right to choose in the state a law enacted in 2014 required doctors to have admitting privileges at a hospital near the facility where they provide abortions and it proved to be a high bar for doctors to achieve chief justice john roberts voted with the four-member liberal wing opposing the votes of both trump-appointed justices and in this segment law professors michelle goodwin and mary ziegler join us to discuss the case and explore what this ruling means for the future of abortion laws. And welcome, Michelle Goodwin, and welcome, Mary Ziegler. Good to have both of you with us.
1: It's a pleasure to be on with you today. Thanks for having us.
0: And I should mention that Mary Ziegler is Professor of Law at Florida State University College of Law. Her new book is called Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the Present. Michelle Goodwin is Chancellor's Professor and Director in the Center for Biotech and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law and her book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Let me begin, if I may, with you, Professor Ziegler, and I I guess the place to begin here is just to sort of analyze uh, the Supreme Court decision. Uh, It seems likely that it was probably struck down, that is, the Louisiana law was struck down in large part because of the Texas precedent that was set in 2016, a very similar case. But I want to get into the implications of this with you as well, and uh, I guess the place to begin would be just to talk about what this means in terms of future decisions, because there's gonna be ongoing fights, obviously.
2: Yeah, I I think that um, the most kind of significant thing today uh, in terms of the future of abortion rights, if you're just watching the court, um, is the emergence of John Roberts as a swing justice and what exactly that means. So you were right, um, Michael, to say that uh, Roberts joined the liberals in terms of his vote, but he didn't actually join uh, Justice Breyer's opinion. Uh, He wrote separately, to say essentially that if he had a blank slate to work with, he would have voted uh, to restrict um, or that this abortion restriction was okay. Um, so uh, that's pretty notable. Um, that means, I think, that abortion rights are not a lot safer today than they were yesterday, but that uh, how and when uh, abortion opponents try to unravel uh, Roe v. Wade is gonna matter um, and that robert's commitment to precedent um, actually means something although exactly how much i think (laughs) remains to be seen
0: well he also uh voted with the so-called liberals on the daca decision and the transgender decision and it seems that his leadership in the court uh, and you go back to the affordable care act also where he voted with the liberals but doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be consistent on that the court is still a conservative court but i wanted Mm -hmm. to also ask you about uh, because you've pointed out on a couple of occasions that There's been a major shift in terms of the fight for abortion rights. Uh, It goes back to the March for Life, even in March of 2019. And all this sudden emphasis on science, Uh, the debate seems to have shifted from constitutional rights with respect to the sort of pro-life movement, so-called, as opposed to the pro-choice movement, so-called, to uh, talking about science and talking about medicine and talking about women's health.
2: Yeah, I think that's still, um, and I think we're likely to see that continue. Um, The reason for that, I think, in part is uh, historically, since the Supreme Court last decided to save abortion rights in 1992, uh, abortion opponents concluded that the court would never um, eliminate Roe v. Wade unless the justices and the public were convinced that women didn't um, and couldn't rely on abortion to achieve more equal citizenship. So uh, the strategy in June Medical was part of an attempt to achieve that. I think the challenge, of course, was that it was also an attempt to get the court to sign off on a regulation that it had struck down four years ago. And when you have a kind of reputation-minded justice like John Roberts, that was always going to be a heavy lift, um, which is why I think you saw the result you did today.
0: And Professor Goodwin, I'd like to go to you. Uh, I read it- good deal of your book and learned a lot from you. Thank you for that. Thank you both for that with your books. But uh, you write a great deal about the criminalization of uh, abortion and the ways it's been used against women, making women invisible and essentially criminalizing motherhood. These are a lot of horror stories uh, and rights being trampled, uh, especially by poor women and especially by women of color. And I'm just wondering how you see in that picture you provide in the book, this decision of the Supreme Court fitting in or not fitting in.
1: Well, you know, I think it's important to understand the legacy of anti-abortion movements and what that means with this case. You know, abortion had been legal in the United States, and its criminalization came about towards the uh, end of slavery. And what many people don't know is that it was strongly linked to a white, uh, to a white supremacist movement uh, and the rise of the professionalization of gynecology. Prior to that time, the majority of people doing reproductive health work had actually been black women and by uh, white male gynecologists. And I'm specific about that because women were not permitted in medical school. So the only people who then could become gynecologists in the United States were white males. And they lobbied to get rid of midwifery. But the tool that they used to do that was abortion. And they talked about how they needed white women to spread their loins and go south and west and north. And so, you know, they were quite keen on using racial ideology in order to uh, both criminalize abortion and also get rid of black women from this profession, which actually would have set them quite well. Today, what this opinion does is it makes me think about those times in many of the states where we see such active anti-abortion campaigns many of them are former slave states in these states there are very high rates of maternal mortality amongst black women nationally the rate is about three uh, three to four times that uh, black women uh, die during pregnancy than white women but in these states it can be 10 or 15 or 17 times higher and so those are really important issues that uh, remain to be addressed and when we're looking at anti-abortion efforts in these states, largely they impact poor women and women of color, specifically Black women.
0: This is why you call this the new Jane Crow, and when you look back through the specter of history, yes?
1: That's, exact, that's exactly right. This is a new Jane Crow, and I think it's important to understand just how emboldened uh, the state of Louisiana was. I mean, it's highly unusual to challenge the Supreme Court right after the Supreme Court has issued such uh, you a know, ruling as it had in Whole Woman's Health. But I think that that kind of emboldenedness, that kind of brazenness was a reflection of the racial undertones of this particular case. And yes, it is a new Jane Crow. I've compared it in other instances to the challenge of Brown v. Board of Education only a year after Brown. I mean, it would have been absurd for the state of Louisiana a year after Brown to say, well, that's just Kansas. We're Louisiana that doesn't apply to us. And that's basically what we were dealing with in this case.
0: Let me invite our listeners uh, to join us in this discussion. We're talking about today's Supreme Court ruling, which struck down a Louisiana abortion law, effectively saving the right to choose in the state. With Mary Ziegler and Michelle Goodwin and you, if you would like to weigh in here, or if you have questions, you can give us a call right now at our toll free number. We invite you to do that. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can join us now at that number, and you can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. Here's an email from Robert who says, let's not forget Susan Collins touting Kavanaugh's solemn promise to follow precedent, justifying her vote for him. Let me go back to you, Mary Ziegler. This is going to continue to be politicized, obviously, to a great extent, but let's talk a bit about the trap laws, because I think that's important to understand in light of this decision. Uh, Actually, they superficially appear to advance patient health. I alluded to this earlier, but really what we're talking about here is not necessarily making abortion safer so much as, well, getting rid of Roe v. Wade.
2: Yeah, I think um, trap laws, again, were part of a strategy to argue um, that not, focusing on, not by focusing on fetal rights, which is, of course is what mobilized abortion opponents in the first place, but by focusing on um, women. Uh, the idea that abortion damaged women's psyches um, and women's bodies. And trap laws of, were part of this strategy because they insisted that abortion providers were not real doctors and that um, allowing abortion providers to protect women's rights was like letting the fox guard the henhouse. Um, So the idea was that you had to impose onerous restrictions on abortion clinics in order to protect women from the kind of depredations of abortion providers. Uh, The Supreme Court's pretty firmly closed the door on that. I think it's worth noting, though, that we don't know yet if the Supreme Court is going to reject this kind of woman protective argument across the board.
0: Yeah. How do you see it, Professor Goodwin? Uh, I mean, particularly in terms of the future battles that are going to go on here. Uh, It is a conservative court after all. And we should mention that uh, the Chief Justice actually in the Texas decision a couple years past uh, voted uh, against what now he's voted for. And probably, as I said earlier, because of precedent.
1: Well, I've been seeing this case is that it really boils down to a question of legitimacy, <clears throat> excuse me, for the court. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts um, has claimed that there's no such thing as Trump judges, as uh, Obama judges, etc. Uh, but the politicization of the court, the partisan nature of the court um, cannot be denied across the country. Also, what can't be denied is the stacking of the court. Um, and the fact that, uh that President Trump has appointed more federal judges than any other president save George Washington. And so when we're thinking about the future of abortion rights, we must understand that and and the judges and just the judges that have been appointed, nominated by um, President Trump and confirmed by the Senate have been individuals who no longer feel the need to say that they believe Brown is good law. Um, feel no longer the need to uh, say that precedent matters, and so that causes deep concern. And I think that we'll only be we'll only continue to see uh, more trap laws. But here's the thing about Justice Roberts and the cases that you mentioned: Bostock, the DACA case, and this case. I think that he cares about his legacy, and I think that he understands that even criticisms are coming from within the Supreme Court about the ways in which. The court has handled its business, especially with regard to this particular administration. And so it's not just the Supreme Court that's at stake in this um, and abortion rights, but really broader questions about our democracy are at stake in this decision.
0: Well, other cases are destined to follow. I mean, state legislatures have passed laws which are designed to essentially force the court to deal with possibly overriding Roe versus Wade. And again, if you'd like to lend your voice here or join this conversation, we're at 866-733-6786. Here's Jake. Jake, join us.
1: Thanks for taking my call. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm curious if there's any process of uh, effectively a judicial review after a Supreme Court case, such as the one in 2016. From what I'm hearing, the court case at hand here is substantively similar so why wasn't this case effectively decided and struck down back in 2016 when the, when the other case was decided? Is there no um, you know, spread of the decision to surrounding laws, or does it only affect the one single law the case was uh, decided on?
0: Jake, thank you for that question. Let me go to you again, Professor Ziegler.
2: Uh, well, so the opening that Louisiana took w- is, involves the, uh, the case that, um, the kind of rule approach that applies to any abortion restriction, the Undue Burden Test. And the Undue Burden Test focuses really specifically on the reality of abortion in America, but also the facts on the ground in specific states. So Louisiana was attempting to say, well, yes, this, this law didn't work in Texas, and it was unconstitutional, but Louisiana isn't Texas. Um, And to some degree, the the law provides openings for that because the court has been skeptical of abortion rights for some time. But I think it was hard for, um, uh, as Michelle said, someone who is uh, committed to preserving the court's reputation to say that there was any daylight between these laws when the facts of the cases were so similar.
0: And let me bring another caller on our Linda. Join us. You're on the air. Good morning.
2: Hi. Let's get to the base of this. The reason the pro-life people want to undo abortion is they believe the soul enters the body, a baby, the fetus, at the time of conception. But I believe that is a policy decision by the Catholic Church at some time because in the Jewish tradition, which is a tradition of law, the child is not considered to have a soul until the shoulders come through the, the birth canal. So um, that is, uh, you know, because uh, that's apparently based on something, some decision back in the Old Testament or something. So, um, But uh, do we know what this policy decision is? And if so, it's policy and not biblical, could we not address it from that level since the argument is always, you know, the child has a soul, the fetus has a
0: soul? Right, Linda, I thank you for that. And uh, we get back to that argument often because people, when they analyze court decisions, get into the fact that, uh, about half of the court were brought up and are still practicing Roman Catholics. I don't know, Michelle Goodwin, how much do you put faith into faith in these decisions?
1: So so many of these decisions are outcome determinative. And I think that's important to consider when we think about what is it religion? You know, what the court says is that this is, the conservatives on the court have said, well, this is really about protecting women's health. This is why we give room for these laws, which we know are trap laws. But here's the thing, you know, a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term in the United States than she is by having an abortion. Um, And Justice Breyer speaks to that in Whole Woman's Health. An abortion is as safe as a penicillin shot. We know this, medical evidence has shown this, and this is exactly the kind of language that's been used by the World Health Organization for a very long time. We know that abortions are less expensive than pregnancy, but if we cared about health, we'd ignore that, and we'd just say, we'd look at, well, which one is safer for women? And what we know is that abortions are far safer for women than pregnancy. The United States leads the developed world in maternal mortality. If you visited the CIA's website now, you'd see that the US ranks around 50th, 51st in the world in terms of maternal health safety. It's safer to give birth in Saudi Arabia or Bosnia than it is in the United States. And finally, both Texas and Louisiana are considered the deadliest places in the developed world to give birth. So when these states say, well, this is all about health and safety, you can't take that seriously. And when the courts would choose to cherry pick and ignore medical science and evidence and side on that and say, yes, this is about health and safety, then you can't take the court seriously. And to Professor Ziegler's point, if Justice Roberts wants the Supreme Court to be taken seriously and have legitimacy going forward, then it 's hard to rely on an on a record like that and I think it also explains why Justice Breyer in these opinions has has stayed so closely to the empirical record because if you read the empirical record, it explains it all
0: i 'm also was struck by the questioning that went on uh, in the Supreme Court decision beforehand, and let me go to you on this Mary Ziegler uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor, for example, made a lot of, uh, well, focus on the distinction between uh, medical abortions as opposed to surgical abortions. And uh, I, I think when we're, when we're looking at this decision, those, that's an important area to question, especially if things are moving more towards supposedly protecting women's health and those arguments of trap laws.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that a lot of the abortion restrictions that we see um, coming to the court in terms of trap laws dated from an era in which most abortions were surgical abortions, or at least more abortions were surgical abortions, even later in, in, um, excuse me, even earlier in pregnancy. And I think that's no longer increasingly less true. Um, And that's the pandemic, of course, has accelerated that because early in pregnancy Um, it's safe to have a self-managed medication abortion. So I think to some degree um, that will change, I think, in terms of abortion opponents understand what medication abortion means in terms of potential access to abortion and also in terms of the coherence of their own arguments. And we've already seen somewhat of a pivot to laws banning either banning medication abortion or regulating medication abortion to the point that um, women can't have self-managed abortions even during the pandemic. And I, I would expect to see more of the same in light of this position.
0: And then so again, Mary Ziegler is professor of law at Florida State University School of Law and the author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe versus Wade to the Present. Michelle Goodwin is chancellor's professor and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine and author of Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and Criminalization of Motherhood. And Professor Goodwin, you had mentioned before, uh, well, the history of abortion and looking at it for the uh, in terms of uh, Jim Crow laws. Uh, and uh, I was wondering about actually a question put forward here by a listener named Bernie, who says, if precedent is so important as Supreme Court thinking, then shouldn't the court have Left Plessy versus Ferguson stand? And when you were talking about Brown versus the Board of Education. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question in light of this. No,
1: it's, it's, it's actually a great question, right? Because, because the person who wrote that question uh, makes an important point, right? I, I think that uh, while precedent is important, um, precedent should not necessarily guide how we see justice in the United States. If precedent were our guide for that, then women would not be able to vote Women would not be able to become attorneys. There are a host of cases which, you know, are kind of overlooked in history that are absolutely abominable. You know, you can think about Dred Scott would remain law of the day, right? So very clearly our sense of justice, our commitment to the constitution, our reading of the constitution for what it is when it mentions equality and liberty, Uh, Now we're evolved where we can understand that, yes, equality and liberty shouldn't just simply be words on paper, but must be real in life. And so that's the enterprise that we're involved with now. And so, you know, it's not that precedent should rule all, but certainly if we are on the pathway to justice and in a case like this, precedent certainly does matter.
0: And here is Theo from Lafayette. Theo, join us. You're on the air. Good morning. Good, good morning. I uh, think that this is an issue of also of protection of children. Uh, I heard after Roe versus Wade and several surveys that were done that child abuse went quite a bit, down quite a bit because unwanted children are apt to be abused. And I wonder if you'd talk about that a little bit. All right. Let me go to you again, Michelle Goodwin.
1: Well, I, again, you know, a very important point, what Justice Blackman did so cleverly and importantly in Roe v. Wade was to talk about the real-life conditions of women forced to carry pregnancies to turn. It was actually a really important decision, not just for the abortion right itself, which was really a case about Um, removing the criminalization of doctors. But what he did was to really talk about the stereotypes, the stigmas, the real life conditions of people forced to carry pregnancies to term that they don't want. And so it's women's poverty. It's uh, not being able to fulfill an education, not being able to work. And also those implications, you know, matter to what one's home life will end up becoming. It's not to say that when women aren't uh, provided an opportunity to access this constitutional right to an abortion, that they will be child abusers. But the truth of it is um, that forcing women into a life that they otherwise would not want and having children that they would not want, imposes physical and psychological barriers and here's something that's interesting to note there are studies that have been done on happiness and happiness involving and by law and economists happiness involving children and what the research shows is that men continue to get happy and gain more happiness by the more children that they have but happiness plateaus for women after the first child so take that for what we want
0: All right, we'll let that stand. And we'll also let stand a couple of comments here that I want to read. One is from Jeffrey who says, the state forcing a woman to carry a child to term against her will is cruel and unusual punishment and an obvious violation of the Eighth Amendment. The 1973 decision has the right result based on a weaker principle. And Ron writes, how can U.S. citizens ever see the court as anything other than political if the decisions are always 5-4? This is leading to lack of confidence in the Supreme Court. And a question for you, Professor Ziegler from a listener named (coughs) Jody, excuse me, who writes, I think it's about time that we put on the books a law that attacks and manages men's reproductive health. It's preposterous that in the 21st century, women's bodies are still essentially being controlled by men. Let's be honest, mostly white, Christian, heterosexual men. If men's reproductive health rights were brought to the table, I highly doubt the conversation would even go anywhere. Men wouldn't stand for it. And, of course, we've heard that argument (laughs) in this abortion debate through the years, i um, like to hear you shed some light or thought on it, Mary Ziegler.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, increasingly that wouldn't work. Uh, in part, if you look at responses, for example, to um, the Supreme Court's opinion on LGBTQ employees and discrimination or the court's DACA decision, the response of conservatives wasn't to say we're playing the long game and we still think John Roberts will join us if we say the right things. It was to sort of demand what conservatives wanted absolutely and demand a kind of ironclad guarantee from judges that they would deliver socially conservative results so i think there's been kind of a shift on the right i think from their standpoint probably a counterproductive shift um toward being more open about the fact that these demands are not consistent when it comes to men and women or that they have some clear connection to religion or morality um, in a way that I don't think you would have seen a few years ago. I think this is kind of a product of the Trump presidency and its effects on the right. Um, and I think, ironically, if you look at today's decision, it's, it's backfired so far and will probably continue to backfire, even with uh, a judge and Chief Justice Roberts, who is far from a robust supporter of abortion rights.
0: But if you read Michelle Goodwin, uh, for example, uh, Justice Thomas's dissent, You don't necessarily read any opening up here. And uh, I was also uh, following the questioning of Justice Alito. And uh, uh, those are two justices who seem, perhaps along with Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, the new conservative appointees, to be pretty strict in their interpretation of what's allowed or should be allowed where abortion is concerned.
1: That's right. And I think it's important to understand that this is not where Republicans always were. You know, Roe v. Wade was a seven-to-two opinion, and Justice Blackmun, who wrote the opinion, was a Republican, was a Republican himself, and a Nixon appointee. And so, what we see is a is a fastening to uh, partisanship, perhaps, and uh, and not just ideology, but something more um, that is um, that is driving what we see in some of these opinions. And also, it's very clear that there's a kind of cherry picking that's going on amongst these justices in cases that involve reproductive health rights. Um, and justice, you know, we saw that in the Nifla v. Becerra case, in which Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion. Um, in that case, the, the court struck down two California laws that were rather innocuous, but the court decided not to hold, you know, true to precedent in that case. And that was just a couple of years ago. We also see it in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, right? In that case, you have Justice Alito saying that, well, you know. Uh, Companies can have uh, religious perspectives and that can govern how they decide things, but we're going to fasten that only to reproductive health. It's not going to be um, the case with regard to vaccination and it's not going to be the case involving all of these other things. So we see that with reproductive health and rights, it's, it's a proxy for discrimination.
0: Michelle Goodwin, we've got seconds left here, but a question that goes right to the heart of your research, Uh, Buck wants to know, can you tell us when criminalizing a woman's self-determination was first recorded in the United States? Well,
1: this goes back to um, just after slavery, really. Um, And in fact, one can actually think about it during the period of slavery, actually, because the the story of Margaret Garner, when she escaped from slavery, um, she was charged with having abused her slave owner's property, meaning herself and her children. So if we want to think about criminalization of reproductive health, it goes right Good place to begin, yeah. Yep, that's it.
0: Let me thank both of you. Michelle Goodwin, good to have you with us. Appreciate your being with us this morning. Thank you. Well, thanks for
2: having us. Thank you for
0: having us. And thank you, Mary Ziegler, and appreciate your being with us as well. Thank you. And thank you, our listeners. We have another hour ahead. We're going to talk about the psychology behind decisions that are made in a pandemic. Uh, Some leading researchers will be joining us for that. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
2: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Get wall to wall Wi Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply, not available in
0: all areas. Actual speeds vary.
1: Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.